Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you would please open, you could be opening up to Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we will go, I think, a little slower than is typical through the first few chapters of Revelation, through the first window of Jesus in with his church. And then uh, after that, we'll pick up some speed going through. So we uh, probably will not be in the book of Revelation until Jesus comes back, <laughs> thankfully. But we're uh, kind of always in it, I guess. Um, I had the privilege this morning of uh, joining up with uh, Pastor Ryan Perkins, who was here a couple summers ago, came and preached during uh, one of our, our July Sundays. He passes a church right over in Covington, uh, Pure in Heart Worship Center. And I got an opportunity to go this morning. They have a very early service, 7.30. And he goes then across the lake. He pastors a church on Gallier Street, um, close to downtown New Orleans. Uh, but he invited me to come because uh, just to, to participate in, in relationship and being a part of the church together, really being the body of Christ. And uh, he described it as desire to look like heaven. Uh, at least one Sunday a year. And so I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I told him uh, we hope to just to, to partner together to see what the Lord uh, has in store, just to bring, uh, the, bring the, the body of Christ together in love. Uh, so I, I got I preached a, a message on unity, which all means I'm fired up. I've already preached this morning, so I'm ready. I hope you all are ready. I just preached to myself, so I'm going to preach myself again this morning. Thanks for being here. But uh, this morning, we're going to look at verses 9 through 20 in Revelation chapter 1. And, and the title of this message is the, the Vision of the Risen Christ for the Endurance of the Church. How many of you are in need of endurance? If you don't have your hand up, I need to talk to you because you know something I don't. So we're all in need of endurance. What's the need in our endurance? To see Jesus. And that's where... Je uh, Jesus meets John in this. And last week we looked at this concept, visions of the unseen realities inform our present reality. This is a picture we're going to see and, and dig into and unpack a vision of how Jesus is, which influences how we walk out life today. And again, we're going we're gonna to need repetition as we go through um, this study together. We'll repeat things often, and I, I just love the fact that when the Lord repeats himself to us, he doesn't get more irritated in his tone. Like when we repeat ourselves to one another, we get irritated in our tone because we should have gotten this already. The Savior doesn't do that. He's patient with us, and we're very glad for that. The passage this morning is John's real-time vision of Jesus, uh, Jesus in his unseen reality to comfort him in his present reality while he's exiled on the island of Patmos. John was instructed to write the vision down to share it in the churches, uh, share it with the churches, so the unreal, un, yeah. See, I told you I was fired up, talking too fast. Unseen reality of Jesus will provide faith and comfort for their present realities. This vision is given to John and is preserved in Scripture for us today so we too can see Jesus. We need to see this vision of Jesus in our own present moment. And it's given with images. Why images? Why not just simply tell us? Jesus is king. Live life. This is why Daryl Johnson helps us out again understand this in his book, Discipleship on the Edge. He says, truth conveyed in imagery 
transforms our vision more powerfully than truth conveyed in propositional language. Imagery goes beyond the intellect, through the emotions, into the imagination. That's where we live, in the imagination. Imagery has the capacity to go beyond the intellect, through the emotions, into the imagination. So the intellect is informed and emotions are ignited with hope. That's our prayer today. I would, uh, as we deal with, it's kind of one of those uh, guiding principles I put in the notes last week. Uh, as we deal with images, think of them more like political cartoons. Where you see, you see a political cartoon, there's a whole bunch represented in that cartoon. It's not exactly literal, but it's based in literal things. It's the same way as we look at the images in this book. And our seeing the vision of Jesus should cause us to see our realities differently. It should ignite hope in our lives that Jesus is alive and he's with us in our realities. Jesus is awesome in his appearance and he's in control over all things. When we see him, we feel faith welling up like living waters on the inside of us. So look at our passage. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of God, a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, light us up with Jesus. Today, I hope that we are able to have the result of seeing Jesus' shining face that causes endurance to shine as his lights on the earth. In the first few verses, 9 through 11, I think we can caption this, that Jesus sees his church. He initially, he comes to John and he sees John. He, he sees, he knows, he understands. And he first sees John's personal suffering. We're told that he's on 
the island of Patmos, exiled. Patmos is a, a little under 500 miles off the coast of Turkey. It was a penal colony, and they had a rock quarry. So all the political prisoners and prisoners of war would go there to work the rocks. John there is there as a political prisoner for refusing to say simple words, these simple words. Caesar is Lord. Why would that be so hard? The emperor at that time, uh, Domitian, required that everyone at some point take a pinch of incense, go into a temple, throw the incense, and just say, Caesar is Lord. Now, for the Roman uh, people, that they're polytheistic. They believe in a lot of gods. There's no big deal. Take it, Caesar is Lord, going about my business. But for those who follow Christ, you can't say that. Because only Jesus is Lord. John refused to do that. And now, that's why he, he is exiled for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. His conscience will not let him do that. Now, why did the emperor just not kill him? He killed Timothy. Domitian killed Timothy. Why not just kill John? Well, because he was smart enough to realize that would have an adverse effect and Christians would celebrate a martyr and the gospel would spread more. So he just puts him on an island as if that'll be all right. So John, in his personal suffering, is lonely. He's exhausted with life. Remember, he's, he's in his mid to late 80s when he's receiving this vision. John was in need of patient endurance. And Jesus came, saw him, came to him. Jesus also saw John's pastoral suffering. There are some clues that John is despairing about the state of the church on gospel mission. Similar, I think, to a lot of present concerns that we would have about the church, specifically in America. Jesus could be coming to address him first personally. John, I care about you. I see you. I see the suffering that you have emotionally and spiritually for the churches, for the churches that he was shepherding and walking with in Asia. John was based out of Ephesus, we know from um, church history and scripture. So he's, he's part of this. He sees this. John sees them. He's aching. And John's concerned about the spiritual apathy that he sees going on in the churches. And one of the churches is addressed for their lukewarmness. He can, he's concerned with their pull toward the seduction of the world. And John is carrying the, the churches close to his heart and he's aching over it. John's pastoral heart is on full display as he, as he announces himself as a partner to the church. He doesn't say, I, John, apostle. So he doesn't come in with a superiority. He comes in with, just like you, I ache and I'm lonely and I need Jesus to show up in my moment too. He's partnering in their tribulation as heirs to eternal life, the kingdom. And John was in need of patient endurance because he wanted the churches to have that patient endurance as well. See, and weirdly enough, well, not weirdly, interestingly, the list of churches is in a pattern as one would walk to them. And I wonder if God came to John and he said, look, I'm going to take your path. I'm going to write letters to the churches. It's the exact path that you walked as you shepherded them. And maybe backtrack to come back to Ephesus. That's why it starts with Ephesus. So Jesus sees John's personal suffering. He sees John's pastoral suffering. But he also sees the church's suffering. 
And we'll see that in the letters, the seven letters that he writes to the churches, they address their individual need for endurance, but they they also promise an overcoming. Jesus is saying, come back to me. I'm it. You will overcome as you consider me, as as you surrender to me. All the churches, all the Christians in the churches need to see Jesus as greater than all the things that seek to replace his rule and reign on the throne of their hearts. It's the battle all of us face every day. Jesus' word to the churches encourages them to overcome as they turn to him and trust him. And we are all partners. We're partners with with John, the believers throughout history in tribulation. We all suffer for Jesus. Now, this is one of those quizzical things that I just, Lord, if you just took all suffering away, wouldn't more people trust you? Because they're signing up for something that, yeah, come, come follow Jesus. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, his summons to us is come and die. Why do I want that? Especially when we look at unbelievers, people who don't have any consideration for God in their lives seem so easy. What up? Well, there's some scriptures that tell us suffering is there. In Mark 10, verse 30. The, Jesus tells his disciples that, hey, you, you've given up stuff for me. Yep. You will be, you're going to be, uh, that's going to be put back on you. It's going to be paid to you. But he includes this, with persecutions. And in Acts 14, 22, uh, 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 um, Paul <laughs> is going around encouraging the, the people in Ephesus saying, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribula- tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. What kind of invitation is this? Do we really want to sign up for this? 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why do we hang in this? Why, why does God do it? Why do we hang in it? I would have you consider these things. Suffering causes us to see Jesus suffering on our behalf. When we suffer, we get a glimpse into what he went through to redeem us, to put us in the presence of God. And God, by his wisdom, will bring suffering into our lives to actually confirm our identity. See, when we identify with Jesus... In his suffering, it's a way to know our identity in Jesus. So we identify with Jesus, so we know our identity in Jesus. Another thing is that uh, suffering causes us to shine with gospel light. We hold this treasure in jars of clay. Cracks, holes, all of it. But there's a light in there. When there's cracks and holes, the light shines through. And different angles, people looking at our lives from different angles can see gospel light. Oh, there's gospel light, gospel light. But it's a miracle that anybody can walk through any suffering whatsoever and say, I trust God. You know, we have that from Job, which was the first book of the Bible ever written. Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be his name. He's the righteous one. He's in control of it all. But understand this, even though God uses and he he will bring us through suffering so we can understand Jesus more and shine with gospel light, Jesus sees us in our suffering. He sees you in your suffering. He sees your loneliness. He sees your exhaustion. 
He sees you in your feeling of spiritual exile or emotional exile. Jesus sees you. And we need to be comforted with the exact same comfort that he brought to John, which is the vision of his glory. The second thing to consider is that Jesus speaks. Jesus sees his church and Jesus speaks to his church. This is verses 10 and 12. John saw Jesus on Sunday, the Lord's day. Let's just remember this. When it was all going bad and the whole world was caving in for John, he didn't not want to be at church. He wanted to be at church. See, I find it really weird how when we get in seasons of our lives where we feel distant from the Lord or we feel just uh, uh, sin is taking hold in my heart too much and I, my, my own spiritual apathy is, is in the mix and I just don't, we just don't want to feel like God, so we, we abandon church. Rather than understand, it's part of the remedy for how we need to, to, to live out our lives. We come to the body of Christ to see Christ, to see Jesus exalted. And when we see that, we look at our lives and say, I love the first line of one of those songs. When we see him, all the other things, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. I remember singing that as a boy. And it's so true. It's so very true. He speaks to his church. This, we trust, this is our prayer, then the preaching of the word. God is speaking to us to conform us, our, our minds, our hearts, our wills, everything to him. So church is celebrating the resurrection of Christ. It's the Lord's Day. We meet on Sundays because Jesus rose on a Sunday, if you didn't know that. So when life is hard, John didn't neglect the Lord's Day. He went to church, and, he, and Jesus showed up to him on a pile of rocks. Jesus speaks to us through the preaching of his word, and Jesus spoke to his churches in the letters to be sent to them and read aloud. Now John turns to see a voice, and he sees seven golden lampstands. We're later told... Uh, what they, that they represent the churches, and we'll investigate that in a few minutes. But catch what Jesus did. He spoke to John about the churches. Hey, I see the churches too, John. And then he says this. He comforts John with a vision for the church's vibrance. He says, this is what the church needs. They need to see me. You need to see me right now, John. The churches need to see me. And so verses 13 through 16, Jesus stands amid his church. What we dig, when we dig into this image of Jesus, remember, this is how, it's describing how Jesus is, not how he looks. He doesn't literally have a dagger sticking out of his mouth as a tongue. That, that would be weird, and it would slice people up. But just think, it, it's at, his words come out with precision. And they come out double-edged. That's what he, So it's a vision of how Jesus is, not what he looks like. And John's experience with this vision, very similar to Daniel's experience with the Son of Man, in Daniel, recorded in Daniel chapter 10. Now, either John knew about Daniel's experience, probably did, read it well. Either he knew about Daniel's experience and he described it the same way, or they had the same experience because they saw the same Savior. They saw Jesus. Now we're told right there that he is first son. I saw in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. Now it's very easy when we read son of man to think, you know, we think son of God, son of man. So we're, it usually 
Well, you know, Son of God, his divinity, Son of Man represents his humanity. But that's not how the Jews would have heard it. That's not how first century would have heard it, because they also were informed by Daniel. Here's how Daniel records Son of Man. In verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, when first century Jews heard son of man, they heard king of all kings. The one who has all authority ever. This is who they heard. And so when Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying the king of all glory, who has all authority, has come not to be served. What do you mean? We're supposed to serve the king of all glory. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The king is going to die? That doesn't make sense. So we can sympathize with the disciples and think, yeah, they had a hard time believing that. He had to say it to them three times. Hey, this is really going to happen. And when it happened, they still didn't believe it was happening. They thought the plan was wrecked. But what's Jesus saying? The king of all glory is coming to lay his life down. So this is who Jesus is. I believe Daniel saw the moment in the heavenlies uh, that when Jesus ascended to the Father's throne, when he ascended to heaven after his resurrection. So with the Son of Man, the Son of Man was the eternal king. Son of Man is the eternal king that has authority over all kings. Look, this should comfort us. Jesus is the king of all kings. Every politician, no matter what they spout and all the answers that they have, Jesus has it. They don't rule the world. Jesus does. He's the king of kings. And then what we're described as a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This image draws one back to the high priest's vestments from Exodus 28. These were garments of the, the only one who could enter the Holy of Holies once a year. And the way it was configured, he had on the... the Shoulders, there were shoulder pieces that were inscribed with all the, the tribe's names and the breastplate with jewels and all the jewels represented uh, the tribes, the people of Israel, God's people. So the, the high priest with his vestments, his garments, when he went into the Holy of Holies that once a year on the Day of Atonement, he brought the people with him into God's presence. He was the only one allowed to go in, but he brought the people with him. We're seeing that Jesus is that heavenly, kingly, high priest who brings his people to the very presence of God. And not just one day a year, praise God, <laughs> forever. He's the eternal high priest who brings God's people into the holy of holies. And that sash around his, it said it's around his chest. And, and you can't think like this way. They really did wear a high uh, waistband. It was either low... When the waist was, when the sash was worn over the hips, it was readiness for warfare. But when it was worn higher, it's, it was a sign of achievement. So what Jesus is saying is, it's all done. It is finished. 
No more payment for sin is necessary. And that gold is, it's, it's really settled. So what do we, what's this picture that we're seeing? The eternal king has accomplished forever his presence for us. And then we see white hair. White like wool, like snow. And we all know what white hair means. You're old. In our cultural mindset, we hide old age. We try to ward it off with fancy technological medical procedures. We try to ward off old age, but we're missing something wonderful about age. We're missing how God views age. God is very pleased with age. It pleases him. Why? Because it shows one who has experience and wisdom in his presence. Jesus' hair represents not his age, but his wisdom from and his experience in God's presence. And it's white like, well, it's pure. So our experience that he's bringing us to is complete purity in God's presence. And no matter how many times we feel inferior, uh, disqualified, unqualified to be in his presence, look at Jesus' hair. That's how we know. Oh, it's pure like wool. Remember Isaiah 1 Verse 18, come, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. It's it's a reference to our position in him, having been completely delivered from the authority, the condemnation, and the penalty of our sins, so we can be in his presence boldly. And we don't have to listen to the lie of the devil over and over and over again, saying you're not worthy. You've messed up too many times. Somebody else is better suited for your place. It's a lie. We've got to see Jesus. That's what his white hair represents. So this eternal priestly king possesses eternal wisdom. And then, which I'd love to imagine in my mind, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Can you imagine looking at somebody that had fire in their eyes? Literally terrorizing, wouldn't it be? It is. So it's like, oh, Jesus, white hair, fire in your eyes. I'm not sure if I should come closer or not. Look, fire is intense. It consumes and it purifies. Our God, we're told in Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. But what does he consume? He consumes sinners in his wrath. But he also consumes sacrifices. Remember Elijah going after the prophets of Baal? Prophets of Baal go out there. They're dancing, doing their thing. No, no God responds. Baal doesn't respond. They, and and uh, Elijah in his faith, he's, he's mocking them. Just cry a little louder. Maybe he's deaf. Maybe he's, maybe he's just off in the bathroom somewhere. He's, he's taunting them. But then when it's his turn, he says, hey, how about you bring some water just seven times. Wet everything. Wet the sacrifice. Now, we know that when you wet something, it'll absolutely burn, right? No. He's making it harder because he's saying, God, you are the consuming fire. But what's on the the altar? Sacrifice. So God consumes that sacrifice by his fire. Let's put it on Jesus. Jesus was a sacrifice for us 
in our place. God consumed him by one pouring out his righteous wrath, stored up for all of our evil intentions, all of our rebellious actions, stored up, puts it all on Jesus, consumes Jesus' life to then purify us by giving us his resurrection life. This is this is fire. The, the fire of God that swallows up sacrifices. And now I think that's it's encouraging for us because as we seek to sacrifice and, and we don't seek to be served but to serve and give our life to others, God consumes that meaning. He ignites it. He uses it. It burns brightly for him. He consumes his people to preserve their hearts and purify their love. Now, there's a double effect that Jesus' eyes of fire should purify us. He sees everything. He sees everything. That should terrorize us when we put our hand to sin or our eyes to sin. It should catch us because he's that pure, that holy. Now, he sees us with a purifying effect. As we look at him, we're actually drawn in and we're able to be in his presence, experiencing his presence. The eternal, priestly, ageless, wise king purifies his people. And then we see his feet. We're told his feet were of bronze. Bronze shows up all over the the Old Testament instructions for the tabernacle. Most everything, everything to support, all the support structures were bronze. But, and, and they were all for strengthening and supporting the features and the furniture of the tabernacle. Now, uh, the iron and steel, those elements weren't discovered yet, so bronze was the strongest element, stronger than gold and silver. And the altar of sacrifice was bronze that sat outside the, the tabernacle for everybody to bring their sacrifices. The cleansing labor that was also out there was made of bronze. The support for the poles holding up the curtain walls, they were all bronze. So Jesus' feet are bronze. So how do we put this together? Feet support the body by strengthening the body, right? Putting these images together, Jesus stands in strength in the middle of his church. He stands to strengthen us. The eternal, priestly, ageless, wise, purifying king stands strong in and for his people. And then we were told to listen to his voice. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Now in this, think waterfall. You know, waterfalls have a, a unique ability to silence other, other noise around because it's captivating us. But waterfalls have this weird way of calming us, too. They have a weird way of just making us feel settled. So Jesus' voice both silences every other voice, and it settles our hearts and draws us, calms us to listen. Again, putting all these things things together, the eternal, priestly, ageless, wise, purifying king, standing strong, is captivating his people with his voice, with his words. Now, then we're said, uh, John sees that he has seven stars in his right hand. And we know later, as Jesus describes this, it's the seven angels for the churches. Uh, not quite sure what this means. It, angel uh, would mean messenger in the original language. So um, I don't know if every church has an angel. That'd be pretty cool 
to one day find out what that angel was doing warfare-wise or we're meeting on Sunday mornings? That'd be pretty cool. I'm not like going to ask God what his name is or anything. Like, can you just let me? No, he's, God sends him to protect us. Look, I played my hand. I do think that happens. But th- this, we shouldn't delve too much into it. Can't build a doctrine out of this just by saying seven angels. Uh, but Jesus, I think, is communicating something more in this picture. The image including seven stars was a prominent Roman concept. There were seven known planets at that time, and emperors used them to signify their complete control over life and earth. They they would surround their thrones with the seven planets, the seven stars. And the Greek goddess Hecate uh, had seven stars in her hand and called herself the beginning and the end. I think Jesus is offering for everybody that would hear this a counter image. Caesar doesn't hold the stars. Jesus does. And stars don't rule the life. Jesus does. To the eternal, priestly, ageless, wise, purifying king who stands strong to captivate, controls everything. And he doesn't need our help or advice on how he's controlling it. He says, my will will be done. You pray for my will to be done. And then we have this really cool... I, I think it's cool. I mean, I, I picture this, and I become a little boy. I'm like, this is a cool picture of Jesus. Like, a, that would be really cool to stick your tongue out, and it's a sword. <laughs> now, what's being described is not this big, long saber. It's a, it's a dagger for close fighting. So what's the concept of Jesus that's being created? He comes close, and he chops things up. We know that from Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, when we come to read the scriptures devotionally, or we just come to read the scriptures, there's two edges that we have, that we experience when we read the scriptures. One is, I'm not great. And the intentions of my heart need some, need some renovation. They need some, some God qualities to them. There's a division that happens when we read this. But there's also a blessing that comes because it's words of life and power and resurrection and redemption. See, when Jesus comes close and he speaks, he's chopping things up. But listen, he's also accomplishing his mission. His word is powerful. Which means everything he says about us, about himself and the world, it's true. Isaiah 55, verse 11, you've probably heard this many times before. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Again, God, God accomplishes his purpose as he speaks through his son. So again, putting these factors together, this image that we're seeing, the eternal, priestly, ageless, wise, purifying king who stands strong to captivate, he controls everything to accomplish his purpose. And then we see the brilliance of his face shining. 
We're told it's the, it's the sun at full strength. What brilliance, what intensely hot, piercing, unapproachable light, while also warm and illuminating. See, these features, these features are brilliant. They're majestic. And remember, John saw this. I think John saw this face once before on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when his, he began to shine and his clothes became whiter than anybody could bleach them? John's seen this before, so I, I think he's recognizing, I know who you are, but yet it's captured him. We, we have a Savior that outshines the sun. We have a Savior that outshines every star in our universe, even the ones we have no idea that are there. So I think I put this sentence in your, this synopsis in your notes. The eternal, priestly, ageless, wise, purifying king who stands strong to captivate, controls everything to accomplish his purpose of shining through his people. You know what God's purpose for you is? To shine with his light. That's what it is, to see it, to know it and shine with it. So Jesus, in, in verses 17 through 20, Jesus is shining in his church. We first see a response to seeing Jesus. John falls down like a dead man. This was Isaiah's response. This was Daniel's response. This is what it means to be slain in the spirit. That's what it means. When you see so much of God, you cannot look anymore and you bow low to worship. The response to seeing Jesus is falling down like a dead man. But listen, the response to seeing Jesus is also experiencing his touch. This also is experienced by John on the Mount Transfiguration. They, got laid, they were laid low. They didn't know what was going on. Peter's like, hey, this is good for us to be here. How about we set up some tabernacles and y'all can hang out and we can. They all get low and Jesus comes over. In all, I mean, this, this dual, he's everything all at once. So he's this cosmic power, and he just touches, a gentle touch that raises him up. We all need Jesus' touch to get up, to walk. Jesus' touch is for the humble and poor in heart. And his touch is greater than our sinfulness. See, when we battle sin, we feel it as weight, right? We feel it as weight forcing us down and keeping us down. That's when we need the Spirit's, the, the, the Savior's touch to raise us up. So the result of seeing, uh, the response to seeing Jesus is falling down and rising by his touch. The result of seeing Jesus is faith. He says, fear not. I got you. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm in control. And also this, I'm alive. I died, and now I live forever. See, we we read those so quickly. But that is what we need to meditate on. That's what we need to be thinking about. This is what he's writing down. Jesus is alive and he's in control of everything. And his intention in seeing us is to build us toward him to the experience of his presence that settles our hearts and shines through us. So everybody who sees us, from those that live in our house, in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, the entire world would see Jesus. You know, the spiritual realm looks on us as well to see Jesus. Angels 
angels look into our lives to see the handiwork of God. Can't remember if it's first or second Peter one. That's where it is. Into which angels long to look. So they're waiting. They're waiting for us to see the exalted Savior because every time it does, they go, oh, there it is again. He did it again. God did it again. Look, it's captured heart, shining light. God did it again. So we have faith when we see Jesus. We also have obedience as a result. He tells John, write these things down. The seven angels carrying the message to the churches, they're going to obey as well. John will obey. The angels obey. And the result of seeing Jesus is to shine with Christ's light. And this is where the golden lampstands come in. This image uh, harkens back to Zechariah chapter 4. When Zechariah sees a vision of a huge golden lampstand with oil being supplied to it by God himself. It It wasn't priests coming, keeping the candles lit, the wicks lit. It was God supplying it. And there was a golden lampstand in the tabernacle to give light in the holy place. But let's think about what, a, what the lampstand represented. It represented the tree of life from Eden. The tree of life was to give light and knowledge, but it, was, it wasn't gone after. Yeah, weirdly enough, the tree of life was in Eden. And when Adam and Eve ate of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said we need to kick them out because they may eat of the tree of life now and be stuck forever. To which I want to ask Adam and Eve, why didn't you eat of the tree of life first? I mean, this is simple deduction, right? Because I don't know the whole story, that's why. I wasn't there. But the tree of life is in heaven. The new earth, the new Jerusalem, where we will be in God's presence. The tree of life is there, we're told, that it, it, had, it bears its fruit, each fruit, each month, 12 months. So 12, diff- 12 fruits, one a month. That's a cool tree. That's a real cool tree. But the golden lampstand was, was to remember that. So look, the church as the golden lampstand is a call to remember the presence that was forfeited in the presence of God. But now the lampstand in Zechariah is also now, it's for the people of God shining with an eternal light to show the path to eternity. The church is the lampstand to shine with the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide the lost to Jesus. To guide them to light. Look, we have resurrection life. That's the treasure that we have. And it's in jars of clay. But as we shine, other people take notice. And when we, fulfill, when, we, when we participate in accomplishing God's mission, joy, joy. I've been uh, thinking about the, the memory verse we had for men's training this past week. And John, I forget the address, guys, you might have to help me. John 14, or is it 16? 16? Thank you, Teddy. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask that you will receive that your joy may be full. God's interested in my joy by answering my prayers. He's interested in us being with him. Remember, chapter 15 is all about abiding in him. When we abide in him, we learn his voice, we learn his heart, and we offer that back to him, and we have joy. God's desire for our answered prayers is our joy, not to make our lives easier. What we go after is, God, can you just fix that person? 
Because my life would be, I could love you a whole lot better if that person was different or removed from my life. He says, no, I want you to have joy. And in the, the, in the unknowable, secret wisdom of God, he uses our sufferings to complete our joy. Just like with Jesus. So what does this mean for us, church? Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So look, not, not to... See, in this moment, my, my pastoral concern for us is that we've just been, man, Jesus, you're awesome. You're awesome. Okay, I got to do what I got to do. And we disconnect what we've just done in looking at all that Jesus is right now, presently. And we go back to, I got to do something for Jesus. And we're not looking at him anymore. So look, let your light shine. How do we let the light shine? We keep looking at the light. So look, we... We live out who we are. You are the light of Christ. Live it out. How do we live it out? We present ourselves to Him. We surrender. Dear God, you're going to do it. And you always do it. So I'd like us to close this morning with prayer with one another. So here's how we're going to do it. As Rebecca uh, just plays in the background, and I'll come up in a few minutes. Uh, I'd like you just to just huddle up where you are. I mean, you turn around just uh, four, five, six people, not huge, long things. If you need to introduce yourselves, do that. So you know one another. But this is what we're going to ask the Lord for. God, will you help us continue to look at Jesus and not look to the right or to the left at everything that seeks to take his place in the throne of our hearts? We submit to him. So we, we're asking for looking at Jesus. We're asking for faith. And we're asking for steadfastness and to live out the light of Christ. Is that too many bullet points that I just gave you? You're praying for each other to love Jesus. Cool? All right, stand up. Stand up. Let's just uh, circle up. Let's pray together.